do with John is tied with James. So James is not the prominent figure that his brother is. One of the reasons is because James dies rather early. Uh, he's, he's, he's the only martyr of the apostles we have in the book of Acts. Um, so, so I thought we go, we could do a lot of that with James, but I thought we would go a different direction with, with John. And that is to, we could do a, a, a biographical sketch of him, but using his own writings to help us uh, under, understand him. So uh, we'll read a few passages, but then I, I want to reference a, a lot um, about him. Let's start with some, uh, um, here we go. Uh, let's start with some basic information. I'll explain this here in a second. We've already said that John is the younger brother of James. Uh, this may be fascinating. We're not 100% sure about this. Uh, there are two Salomes in uh, the Gospels. Um, one of those is, is likely John and James's mother. We know the sons of Zebedee. Salome may be their mother, who may also be the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So one of the reasons that you have... Um, James and John, an early disciples of Jesus, is likely because of the long-term relationship they had in Galilee. Um, so, so there was they already knew each other, and it probably explains why uh, they so quickly left everything behind, including their dad's business, to follow Jesus, uh, because that would have made them first cousins. So, uh, I find that fascinating. Uh, it's, it's not something we can be dogmatic about, but there is strong evidence for it. It also explains why at the end of Jesus' life, John, the like, a very possible first cousin of Jesus, is at the foot of the cross with Mary. You remember what Jesus says. You got to take care of mom. Uh, Joseph is probably dead by then. Joseph is dead between age 12 and 30, Jesus' life. Um, as good, good circumstantial evidence for that. So Jesus would have had the responsibility for that. It's also probably why you see Mary showing up all the time in the Gospels. Mary's not staying in Nazareth. She, she seems to, to have been closely associated with Jesus in some sort. Uh, we see her in Galilee. Remember when Mary uh, gets the, the brothers and say, go get your brother off that podium. He's talking crazy again, right? Um, and then we also see her at, at the cross. So we see her following Jesus quite a bit. We also see her in the upper room um, prior to, 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 to the ascension uh, in Acts 1. Um, and it, it makes sense that John would then be assigned by Jesus as one of his disciples because his brothers, his half-brothers, weren't his disciples yet, uh, not till, till after the resurrection. Um, behind Luke and Paul, John wrote most of the New Testament. Paul is the most, uh, mostly because he, he has a lot of books in there, at least 13, possibly 14, depending on your view of the authorship of Hebrews. Luke wrote two books, but they're very large books, Luke-Acts, um, unless you think he wrote Hebrews. That's a fun uh, uh, possibility. Um, but um, uh, John has uh, one of the larger Gospels, the Gospel of John, uh, three short epistles, and of course Revelation, one of the longer books of, of the New Testament. Um, he also uh, is the only apostle, according to tradition, um, that did not die a martyr's death. Uh, that doesn't mean he wasn't persecuted. We'll see it uh, later on. Uh, one story in particular is possibly reliable. It's, it's difficult when you're doing tradition uh, because where we get the stories um, are handed down, and they'll tell you where they come down from. And some of them um, aren't, aren't very early. Um, uh, so John is the last of the apostles to die. His brother James is the first of the apostles to die. 
fun little factoid about that. We saw last week with the story of Peter uh, that where Jesus says, if it's my will that he lives forever, what is that to you? Well, so we have biblical evidence that John is still around uh, quite late. Um, so, so that tradition seems, seems really solid. He is known uh, not only as the sons of Zebedee, one of the sons of Zebedee. He's, he's really known as the apostle of love, or you may see him described as the beloved disciple or the beloved apostle. You Beth Moore fans have probably seen her book, one of her more popular books called The Beloved Disciple. It's a study of, I believe, John's gospel. Um, and uh, that is his, his more, more common name. Um, now, uh, the reason uh, this is his simple. So all 12 apostles, and I assume Paul has one too, but I'm not Catholic, so what do I care? Um, but all of the apostles have a symbol coming out of tradition. So when we get to Andrew, we'll talk about the cross of St. Andrew. Um, and uh, this is John's. It is a cup with a snake coming out of it. Right. Now, where in the Bible are you going to get that? Right? You, you ain't, right? Hence the Catholic Church stuff. Um, but the story goes, John was almost poisoned. And uh, what happened was, before he took a sip, miraculously, the poison was turned into a serpent. Now, I doubt that story's true. I, I, call me a skeptic if you want to. Um, but that's where this comes from. You could do with that whatever you want, but that's a fun little factoid you won't get in the Bible. Um, so let's start two things. Uh, uh, we want to see with John. The first is that love did not come naturally to him. Uh, one of the things you'll find about medieval portraits like The Last Supper is John is often portrayed as meek, gentle, and even effeminate. Are, do you all know where John is among the twelve? By the way, uh, you know the joke about this painting is that Jesus walks into the restaurant and says, I'll take a table for, for uh, 26. We're all going to sit on one side. <laughs> you ever heard that joke? I just love that. That is, that is so funny to me. Um, uh, but do you know where John is? Here's Jesus, in case you couldn't tell that he's the center of, of, of attention. Uh, do you know where John is? He's... He's hiding. If you're a Da Vinci Code guy, yeah, yeah, you know, John's not there. Here he, here he is, right here. Now, what does John look like? Go back here. Notice something. See all the beards? The Calvinists there, right? Uh, they got the beards. Uh, but not, not your boy John. Very feminine, isn't it? So if, if you remember the, the Da Vinci Code and you wasted your life on that nonsense, one of the things that Dan Brown argued was, what you have here is Mary Magdalene. And what you also have missing is the chalice, the cup. Okay? So you, you ready to have your mind blown with nonsense? It's like watching CNN. So notice here that these two make a V, international symbol for a woman, right? Guess who's right next to Jesus? A woman, Mary Magdalene. Of course it's Mary, because we all know that they, they got married and had a few kids. Oh, speaking of the kids, where is that chalice? It's not there. Can I tell you where the chalice is? In her belly. She's pregnant. Now, all that's nonsense, right? My point is to show that, and I, I can show other paintings, but this is the funnest, because people were just blown away by, by, by the, the Da Vinci Code. Yeah, Don. Following one of my ancestry lines, uh -huh. they were my, er, 
parents along the way. Really? Yeah. So, have you, have you seen the Da Vinci Code movie? No. Okay, you're in the movie now, yeah. right? So, so you would be Tom Hanks' new girlfriend, okay? <laughs> you know, I'm not going to judge. So, so he, he's like a, this, this antique historian or, or he's a symbol guy. I, I don't know. And uh, so, so this woman is a descendant of Jesus. She's the last one. And, and the bad guys, the Illuminati, whatever they are, you know, the Catholic Church is bad, I guess. And they're going to come get her because and, and, she's in on the conspiracy. I don't know, all this. So Gandalf explains all of this, you know. You know, the guy that plays Gandalf or Magneto, depending on what you prefer. And uh, he, he goes through all of this. And, and uh, it's, it's nonsense, right? But you can see that whenever da Vinci painted John the Apostle, we have other paintings of John, very effeminate, because we, we think of him as the beloved disciple. But when you read the Bible, particularly in, um, in the Gospels, that doesn't describe him. That is not the sort of person he is. There's three, reason, three examples I can give you. The first is in his nickname. Shows up in Mark chapter 3, verse 17, and it says, uh, James the son of Zebedee and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boanerges, that is, sons of thunder. I don't know about you, but that meek kid who gets picked on by bullies, right, sits in the corner of the class with his magic cards, you know, because he likes that game. He's the only one that does. Um, you don't call him sons of thunder, right? He's not Thor sitting back there, right? You ain't going to do that, right? No, you, that's, that's, a, that's, that's a nickname to describe their personality. And that personality shows up all the time in, in the Gospels. So let's start in Luke chapter 9 for one of those examples. I'm going to give you two examples. Luke 9, um, Stu, go down to verse 51. And we won't spend a lot of time exploring this. So when the days uh, drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparation for him. You know your Bible, you know that's a significant detail. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, remember their brothers, uh, and perhaps first cousins of Jesus, they said, Lord, do you want us to, to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. What kind of person do you have to be to think, we'll solve this problem right now? Right? And I'll just, you know, that's, that's, I'm, I'm one of your disciples, Jesus, because I have an obsession with fire. Right? You know, and if I could just control it. Um, but, but now, obviously, there, there's a prophetic tradition here. Elijah is the one that, that does that, right? And, and Jesus associate, or people associate Jesus with Elijah and the prophetic tradition. So what they're doing is, let's be like the prophets, and those who reject the prophets get, you know, you know we'll treat them like witches, and we'll just burn them alive, right? If they don't float, they, they're witches or whatever, whatever it is, right? Now, there is a context to that. In the immediate context, those who are, you know, not... Uh, those who are against us, you know, all of us, that sort of stuff. But, but I just want us to see the personality of James and John. These guys aren't soft. They're ready for the bad guys to, like, die early in the movie, right? Let's not talk to the bad guys. Let's not have them over for dinner, right? Let's just deal with it now. The kingdom of God will come in flames, right? Uh, in in uh, Mark chapter 9, if you'll turn there, we'll, we'll look at another example, maybe more significant. Mark 9. 
38 and 41. It's a similar context. And Jesus just talks about who is the greatest, right? Because they're always fighting about that. So Mark 9, starting at verse 38. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Now, what is interesting about this, my understanding, this is the only place in the Gospels where John appears by himself. When he shows up, even in the book of Acts, he's with Peter or James or someone else. Here, he's all by himself. And what is it that he wants to do? He says, look, we saw someone doing something miraculous uh, in your name, but he's not one of us. Do you want us to uh, deal with him? <laughs> Probably light him on fire. <laughs> right? And Jesus says, no, no fire today, John. No fire. The fire will come later. You know? um, so so we, we do get this, this personality from John in the Gospels that is very fiery. Uh, he's, he's not the, the meek guy that you get in the Da Vinci and, and other medieval paintings. It really is the opposite. He's the one that should have the beard, right? Um, Peter is too busy getting his foot out of his mouth to have a beard. John, on the other hand, earns the right to be called a man. But we don't think of him in, in, that, in that sense. And the reason is because um, John is a man of both truth and love. And so what we get in these scenes is a man who's very zealous for truth. And that's really the big idea. He sees someone violating the truth, they don't, they don't accept our doctrine. They're not going to follow you, Jesus. And that, that zealousness for truth leads to violence in, in, in his case. And, and he never loses that zealousness for truth. So let me give you an overwhelming amount of evidence from the writings of John. He never surrendered truth. But, in, but what he must learn is to sprinkle it, saturate it with love. So let's see the truth statement. First John 1, 6, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we don't practice the truth. Now you could say you're a hypocrite. That, that would require less space on a scroll. But he wants to emphasize that of the truth. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. 2, 4, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. By the way, the word know is the key word in his writings, but truth and love is, is how we understand if we know Christ and are known by him. I did a whole sermon on that uh, quite a while ago. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lies of the truth. Notice again, no is in there twice. Uh, chapter three, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. By this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. Chapter four, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. In 5, 6, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but also by the water and the blood. Spirit is the one who testifies because the spirit is the truth. Uh, to John, the elder to the elect lady and her children whom I love in truth. Not only I, but also all who know the truth because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. 
in uh, verse 4, rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. Uh, in Third John, we see, for I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth. Oprah all of a sudden woke up, as indeed you are walking in the truth. Notice, your truth is not whatever it is you want it to be. It has to be the truth now becomes internalized as your truth. But you don't have your truth unless it corresponds to the truth, right? So just pound that because Oprah is awful. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Third right? um, John 8, therefore we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. Third John 12, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony. You know that our testimony is true. In the Gospel of John, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Chapter 8, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. One more example. I didn't put it up there because you know it so well, right? John 14, 6. I am the way. I am the truth. So when John speaks of the truth, it isn't internalized. It is an objective reality that then becomes true whenever we know Jesus. So the truth is, is the story of the gospel, that Christ is the truth and has come bearing witness of the truth, and the truth is found in, in the gospel. That's the whole point of the gospel is that you would know the truth and the truth to set you free. So then in his epistles, he says, being that that is true, is it true in your life? So do you have the spirit of truth manifesting itself in your life in that you are obedient to the truth? So what we see in the Gospels, in these vignettes of John, is he is very zealous for the truth. There are people over here who, who, who don't vote the way we think they ought to vote. Can we catch them on fire now? Right? That is someone like a Pharisee who's driven mad by a desire for truth. Right? And we all have people like that in our lives, don't we? Uh, and you may be one of those, right? And that if someone is off just a little bit, you've got to correct them, right? And you're the guy who spends all your time on, on terrible blog sites so that you can find some conspiracy that corresponds to your truth so that you can bash it over people's heads on Facebook. All right? All right? Don't be that guy, right? All right? Uh, but, but it's the truth, and people got to know the truth, right? Sheep people, sheep, sheeple, is that... What's the conspiracy? Sheeple? Is that the term they use? I don't know. Um, I have a life. Um, and I don't spend all my time in, 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 in my basement. But what happens is when truth isn't saturated with love, it becomes something very dark. And that's what we get in the Gospels. Warren Wiersbe summarized it well. And he says, truth without love is brutality. Love without truth is hypocrisy. That is a helpful summary of John before the resurrection and, and what became of him after the resurrection. So love for John, though he's known as the beloved disciple, isn't something that came natural to him. Truth came natural to him. Love is something he had to learn by conversion, the resurrection, and by it being modeled to him by Christ. So when John says, should we light these people on fire? Jesus gently says, no, we're going to love them regardless. That is a lesson John has to learn. And what you'll find in a lot of churches is people who swing between one of, one of these two extremes, people who are passionate about truth and those who are passionate about love, but too often we lack the other. And it is key to, to, 
to biblical fidelity and gospel fidelity to, to have both. So, so love or truth is something that came natural, not love. But then we see that love ultimately came by grace to him. So what came is, is not just truth, but love. And this shows up through, throughout his, his writings. In 1 John 2, whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Notice that you are in him. You know that you are his. So 1 John is really about assurance. Uh, um, how can I know that I am in him? Two, there are two tests. One is the test of truth. Do you possess the truth? Do you believe the truth? Have you been transformed by the truth? And, have, and does it manifest itself in you? And that will show up in love. So those are the two. How can you know that you are Christ? Truth and love is his, his answer. So it isn't sufficient to, to know that I know a, a statement of facts about Jesus. Anyone can do that. But the, does, does the truth change who I am? And is it demonstrated in love? That's the key. Truth and love. Uh, similarly, in chapter 3, verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So notice again that the truth will manifest itself in love. The truth is, have you, um, have you passed out of death into life? That's the truth statement. And the demonstration of it is love. Um, one more here. Chapter 3, verse 23. This is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ. That's the truth. That's the simple gospel message. Believe in the son of God. And love one another as he commanded us. That's it. I mean, that's the Christian life in a nutshell. If you want a memory verse for, for tonight, uh, that's it. And you would meditate, do I believe the truth and do I live by love? The God of the truth is the God of love. So you can't possess one without the other and it still be genuine. All right? this, this, is, this is the main message of John. So in terms of his theology of love, what is it that we see here? It's nothing new that you haven't heard a million times before because John is very black and white. Which makes sense. That's his personality. Again, Jesus, they're the bad guys. Can we light them on fire? That's a very black and white worldview. It isn't Jesus. I'm not sure what to do with these people who don't like us, right? They voted against us on, on Twitter. No, no, no. He, he, it's very black and white. You're either with us or, or you're against us. We wear the white hats because it's the Western. They wear the black hats. And I'll be your huckleberry, right? John is very black and white. You're either the son of God or you're the son of the devil. You're either in light or in darkness, in life or death, right? You're either one or the other. So three ways that, that love manifests itself um, because of the truth. The first is love comes from God. Love comes from God. So we see this, chapter 3, verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Notice that he wants you to know the truth and the truth is saturated with love. The truth is God sent his son to us. That's the demonstration of love. So you gotta, in order to know the love of God, you gotta know the truth of God. That God uh, has given us this gift of his son. And as a result, we are called children of God. So God has given us his son who through adoption, we become sons and children of God. 
Uh, same thing in chapter four. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. That's important. You can't get the command, love one another, without the infinitive, with, with, without the, 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 the foundation, that love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. There's that key word, know. How do you know that you have embraced the truth? You love as God has loved. How has God loved? He loved in the person of his son. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, that's, that's the verse we, we all quote, usually out of context. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. That's his definition of love. Love is not an internal feeling. Uh, it, it isn't uh, my truth, but rather it is to say, God has demonstrated his love in, in the personal work of Christ does when I say I am loving, does it look like that? Right? And the answer is probably no. <laughs> right? we, we, we haven't quite gone that far. But the definition of love is, is a crucified love. Um, verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he first loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Propitiation just means uh, atonement that that has the purpose of appeasing the wrath of God. So, so here Jesus is portrayed as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin, sins of the world. That is Johannine theology from, from his, his gospel. So, so this is love, God's love. Love comes from God. It is a gift from God. If you take God out of the equation for love, it's no longer love. You can call it fatuation, call it lust, call it whatever you want, but don't call it love. Um, Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. This is so important for John that, that we grasp that love comes from God. It is a divine attribute that we should share with him. So we see that love comes from God, but then there is the return that we must love God. We must return love back to God. So this, this is, again, is important. Before we even talk about loving each other, we've got to think, okay, if God has demonstrated his love to us, how should I respond back to God? And, and John will say, look, the truth, God has shown his love, should be reciprocated by means of worship and obedience. Worship and obedience. Think about it. If you love something, a sport, an event, uh, something like that, your adoration for that is going to be very evident. Chances are you won't stop talking about it, and you won't spend all your time with it. Right? We, I think we get so, so, so I love soccer, and, and I, my, my favorite day of the year is Boxing Day, not to sound British. The reason is because that is a British holiday where all they do is watch soccer. Right. So, so in America, it's Thanksgiving because of football. Right. In Britain, it's, it's Boxing Day. And, and uh, so, so there's like 40 soccer games on. Right. I love it. You know, you don't want to leave the house on Boxing Day because people are crazy after Christmas. So you sit in your house and you watch international football all day. Now, that's the life. That is the life to me. Right. So, so because I love it, right, and my, I don't know my favorite team is going to be playing on Boxing Day, so, so, so my adoration for it is evident. So, too, if we have received love of God, then, then the proper response is to give love back to God. And we understand this, right? If, if, if a marriage is based on one person loving the other 
and the other is indifferent, marriage ain't going to survive. You wouldn't call it a loving marriage. Love, by definition, is something that is reciprocal. Love is something given and received. So if, if we know the truth that God has loved us in his son, we receive that, that has the response, response of obedience and adoration. So we get in chapter 5. Um, maybe. Here we go. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. That's the truth. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. Now think about that. Whenever we think about loving others, we typically sentimentalize it, right? I I throw them good vibes, you know, every once in a while. I just throw out good vibes, whatever that means. Very pagan, but whatever that means, you know. Uh, okay, uh, you know, I, 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 I took them, uh, they had surgery and I took them brownies. I really love them. You know, I called them on their birthday. I let them have the remote, right? Uh, surely I just showed that I love them. Actually, John says that stuff's nice and everything, but it's actually found when we worship and obey Christ, and through that, we apply that to how we love our neighbor. So we are not loving our neighbor if we are in disobedience to Christ. We think about it. If, if, if you're with your buddies and they're bashing your spouse and you contribute to that, are you loving your spouse? No, no. True love is defined by worship and obedience to the God who is love. So if I demonstrate, try to demonstrate love to someone else that involves sin or distorts the gospel, it isn't the love of God, nor am I loving God. So one of the key ways you love God is through worship and in how you love other people. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. You can take that last line out of your Bible because it's not true. Right? I used to be a youth pastor. Man, they hated that verse. Nuh-uh, because I don't like what it says about my girlfriend, right? Well, the problem's with you, Hoss. <laughs> I mean, you've got to figure that out. Um, that verse always sticks out to people. God's commandments are not burdens. And they're not. I tell you, if you want a greater burden, disobey God. Look at the brokenness of our society. All of it stems from disobedience to God. All of it. Look at streets that are literally on fire, and you can't blame John for that. What is the reason much of it stems from broken homes, that, and you have broken homes because you have broken people living in sin. So if you want burdensomeness, if that's a word, then live in disobedience. If you want true freedom, it's found in obedience. So I think, I think John is, is, is exactly right. So the key to, to knowing the truth and, and living the truth, and that is love. Love is from God. We must reciprocate love to God. And then that, of course, leads to, that's a typo, loving um, one another. Uh, loving one another. First John 2.15, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. That's interesting. If you want to live a perfect life, love your neighbor. Of course, theologically, that means you are loving God, right? So all, everything else was, was important. So, um, and notice again, the light darkness motif. Um, I think, I think we've, we've, we've mentioned the light motif in John's writings. Uh, it shows up all over the gospel of John. It's not an accident. Um, my favorite example is in the Nicodemus story. 
So in Nicodemus' story, um, Jesus meets with Nicodemus in the middle of the night. It's dark. The next chapter, Jesus is meeting with a Samaritan woman. What time of day is Jesus meeting with a Samaritan woman? You remember? It's noon. The brightest part of the day because the sun is right there. So you see that the Pharisee is hidden in darkness. The Samaritan woman is, is exposed to the light. And in John chapter 3, verse 16, we know that verse, but if you keep reading, verse 18, Jesus says, the light has come and has exposed some whose deeds are evil and they prefer the darkness, but who illuminate the others. And the next story, well, not the next story, but the next chapter is of a woman whose deeds are evil, but she's in the light. Because when she meets Jesus, then we figure out it's noontime. It's just good writing. The Bible is really well written if, if, if you read it as literature. And then it's later on you get the, uh, uh, the man born blind. He's in darkness, but he sees Jesus, who's the light. But those who are in the daytime and can see are blinded to Jesus. And it's in that context Jesus does the I am the light of the world. Uh, it's beautiful writing. This is John, very clear, black and white. He does the same thing with death and life. I think we've seen a few examples of that. Um, anyways, that's free. Uh, chapter 3, by this it is evident who are the children of God, who are the children of the devil. Again, black and white. Uh, whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Well, that's pretty simple, isn't it? Right? Um, if, if you're like doing bad things, you're not of God. Well, that was easy. Uh, nor is the one who does not love his brother. So notice that, that it isn't just that you're practicing unrighteousness, but you refuse to show genuine love to, to your neighbor. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, which is how he begins his, his epistle, that we should love one another. That's his message. If you get loving God right, and it's in the context of worship, and you're growing in intimacy with God, you will, you will love your neighbor. Chapter 316, so if you want to remember another John 316, it's the first epistle. By this we know love. He laid down his life for us. It's the theological foundation. Love comes from God. We, therefore, ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So love is defined by the cross. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. How practical is that? If you see a need and don't meet it, you're not loving your neighbor. It's amazing, isn't it? This is the genesis of Christian hospitality. It's why the word hospital comes from the, the Greek word for hospitality. Same etymology. And Christians were the ones driven by hospitality, which eventually led to health care. They were the ones when, when a plague hit the city. We talked about this at the beginning of COVID. Uh, Christians would go into the, 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 the city fountain where all the sick would be dropped off by their healthy family members. And they would leave town because they didn't want to get the plague. Christians would go into where the sick were, bring them into their homes and take care of them. And one of the things the Romans noticed was not only did Christians die to save strangers, the uh, rates of recovery skyrocketed because they were shown love. You think about it. You, people who have family who visit them in the hospital are more likely to do better than those who don't have that. And I think we understand that pretty clearly, right? That's uh, so why hospitals before COVID, were very generous with 
family visiting, a minister's visit. So Frankfurt used to have, I don't think they have it now, because they cut it down to like one parking spot and then they moved it back. Parking for clergy. And this is the idea, is that if you are prayed for and you have people who demonstrate love to you, you're more likely to recover. Um, Now, COVID's made a mess of it. My poor wife has had to put up with it for last week. Uh, Only one person go in and uh, you have to get a DNA test or something. I don't know. It's pretty, pretty crazy. Well, this is the message of John. So he's a person uh, who's zealous for the truth, uh, but he must learn love. And by the time we meet him in Acts and in the epistles, we, we see this balance really beautifully. So in Revelation, which we've not really looked at, um, the first letter to the church of Ephesus, which is where he pastored uh, for a long time, probably pastored all the churches in Asia Minor in some sense, but he's most known for Ephesus. The church of Ephesus, remember, left their first love. Even in the apocalypse, love is the key. Love is, 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 is the key. So what happened to him afterwards? Um, what happened after, uh, well, in terms of his, his ministry? Well, according to tradition, John, as well as some of the other apostles, stayed in Jerusalem for, or the Judea area for about 12 years. John does show up in Acts. He's with Peter. Remember, he gets arrested and you tell us whether or not we should obey you, but we're going to preach Christ. Uh, but John, again, is showing up with, with other people. He's rarely alone. Um, according to tradition, he does that for about 12 years. And then what happens is Herod Agrippa's persecution of Christians in Jerusalem. That shows up in Acts. Uh, and so Christians start to scatter out of Jerusalem. And there, as a result, he he finds his way eventually in Ephesus. And this is what little we know of John, this part is probably true. We get it from internal evidence of the New Testament. We also get a lot of external evidence from church history. Some of it quite reliable and early that he, his primary ministry was in Ephesus. So I think the thinking is Paul planted the church in Ephesus. Then John comes later to, to sort of pastor that church, which is not uncommon. Remember, we saw last week with Peter Paul probably planted the church in Corinth, but Peter, among others, came and pastored there. Because remember in 1 Corinthians, they're debating over who their favorite preacher is. If you grew up in a rural church that goes through preachers like, um, like liberals go through opinions um, and reasons of the riot, um, then, then you, know, you know this tendency, right? So, so the church I pastored, they went through pastors about every two to five years. I was the longest-serving pastor in a century. I was there for six years. Okay? Or my wife's church, it was like every, every three weeks. Um, in some cases, that wasn't far from the truth. Um, they had one guy stay for a while, and everyone was like, why are you still here? <laughs> I mean, there are students from seminary. We'd like to get four of them before the semester is out, okay? And there's six weeks left, okay? Um, uh, but what you'll find in those churches, and maybe you grew up in the church like that, is the pastor comes in and he's immediately judged not by his predecessor, but by his previous eight guys or whatever it is. Right? And I experienced that. They said, well, you preach like this guy, you pastor like that guy, you lead like this guy, and they, weren't, they usually weren't compliments, and, and you're, you're young like this guy, or, or you're boring like that guy, right? You're always being compared to them. That's what Paul's dealing with. Because people are consumed with preferences. I'm so glad that doesn't describe American Christianity. Um, so it's likely that John ministers in Ephesus after Paul leaves, uh, which is quite convenient. I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't you like to go from Billy Graham to Alistair Begg? I mean, wouldn't that be nice? Uh, 
man, you guys did not do that. Um, but it is while in Ephesus, he writes his three epistles, the, the second two quite, quite short. Um, and it's also while he's there, he is banished to Patmos, where he writes um, the book of Revelation. And the, we have internal evidence for that because Revelation 1 mentions that while he's on the island of Patmos. And the story is that uh, he is punished by Caesar, and the timeline fits under Diocletian, I believe. I don't, it's not gospel, so I may be wrong on that. Diocletian was one of the more violent persecutors of Christianity in the first century. You're looking at Nero and Diocletian are, are by far the worst. There's some that come later, but those guys were, were, were quite bloody. Um, and uh, before he was banished to Patmos, the story goes... He was put into a, a uh, what do witches use? What is that thing? Cauldron. It is a cauldron. Okay, it didn't sound right. He's put in basically in a cauldron of boiling oil as an elderly man and then sent to Patmos. Now, part of the story is he was put in there, but he didn't get hurt. So did it happen? I don't know. But if it didn't happen... Somebody had to make that story up. And they've been watching, I don't know, too much Netflix shows. I don't know, right? That, that's, they need counseling. Just to, oh yeah, can we add a part where he gets boiled alive and survives? You know, um, but that is a very common story. Uh, if you're a Left Behind fan, uh, uh, Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jenkins did a brief series on the four gospels. It was the story behind the gospels. I've read the one on John. There's a story why I did that, but you don't care. Um, it was John Barry, uh, uh, Johnny Barry's book. I've still got it there. Um, they have that story in there. I remember reading it like that is wild. Um, and they go into all sorts of details. So if you're fascinated by that. Well, uh, while he was an elder in Ephesus, one of the things he did was he trained future pastors. And we know their names. Uh, two of them uh, that are quite influential. One is a guy by the name of Polycarp. Polycarp would become the Bishop of Smyrna and uh, he taught a guy by the name of Irenaeus. Now, you may not care about those names, but if you ever study early church history, the, the patristics, what they're called, these two names are very influential. Irenaeus was a very influential writer, teacher, theologian. Some of his writings really help us understand the, the early Christianity. He fought against the rise of Gnosticism and all the various fronts of it and all those heresies. Polycarp is significant because of his story of martyrdom. Polycarp is burned at the stake in the Roman Colosseum. I don't think he was eaten by a lion. I think he was burned. I don't know. And uh, his testimony, which is the Greek word where we get martyr, was that he was asked to recant or else he's going to die. And he said something like, for 80 years I've worshipped Jesus as Savior. I'm not going to recant now. And so they, you know, light him on fire. Um, so Polycarp is an influential voice. Um, another person that he, he trained was a guy by the name of Ignatius of Antioch. He, of course, becomes the bishop or the head pastor of Antioch. Um, and he's the one that tells a rather infamous story of John. We don't know if it's true, but it's still fun. Um, in fact, I meant to write down this reference. Um, UN Times buffs. Where does the word Antichrist show up in the New Testament? What book? It's not Revelation. It's 1 John. Antichrist is never mentioned in Revelation. Now, I probably just offended you. You're mad about your upbringing. Now, what is in Revelation is the beast. 
And what people do is associate the beast with the lawless one, to use Pauline language, and the Antichrist. They just use that term. Whether that's a good idea or not, not my concern. Uh, by the end of the year, we'll do Revelation for the devotions. So maybe we'll cross that bridge whenever we get there. I don't know what we're going to do devotions for Revelation. So what John says in 1 John is, we know the Antichrist. The Antichrist is already here. In fact, there's many Antichrists. What is an Antichrist? Someone who's against Jesus. That's a pretty easy definition from the term Antichrist. What if I told you we know who that person actually was? It's a guy named Serenthius. And he denied the, uh, the humanity of Jesus. It's a very common uh, uh, heresy uh, in uh, the early Christianity because of Greek thought. We've talked about this before. In early church, people denied the humanity of Jesus, not his divinity. In American, Western thought, we denied the divinity of Jesus in favor of his humanity. So if you read John's gospel, he really wants you to know Jesus is divine, very clear in his gospel. But also he wants you to know Jesus was human. So after Jesus is raised, he's eating fish, which is awesome. But, but remember, he's, he's being touched. And he tells uh, Doubting Thomas in John's gospel, come touch my side. Come, come touch my, right? And in 1 John, he talks about anyone who denies that Jesus came in the flesh is antichrist. That is the teaching of Serenthus. Very possibility he has Serenthus in mind when he writes the first epistle. And the story goes from uh, Ignatius of Antioch that one time uh, John walked into a bathhouse. They were common back then. I don't know what to do with it beyond that. And uh, he walks to the bathhouse, sees Serenthus. And so he, he doesn't bathe. He runs out screaming, saying, I've got to get out of here before God collapses the roof on top of Serenthus. It's a famous story of John. It's not in the Bible. You won't find it in two acts, but it's a, it's a common one. Um, and it, he's likely the one behind First uh, John. Okay, how did he die? Well, tradition says he died around the year 80, 98. He was probably the, one of the youngest, if not the youngest of the disciples in the Gospels. Um, and he died an aged man uh, who, uh, the story goes, a Tertullian, I think someone tells us, that uh, he was so brittle in his elderly age, he had to be carried to church. So what's your excuse, right? Now, he's literally carried to church uh, by, by the believers there. And Tertullian tells us his, his most common phrase was simply, my little children love one another. And when people would ask him, why is that so important? He would say, quote, it is the Lord's command. And if this alone be done, it is enough. Sometimes the simplicity of the gospel is so profound. And one of the things you'll find reading John, and you've heard me say this about John's gospel, it is shallow enough for a child to wade in its waters. Every new believer, anyone new to scripture should start with John's gospel. Meet Jesus in the simplicity of John's writing. In fact, if you ever study Greek, you're going to know John better than anyone because he's very elementary in his, English, in his Greek. But at the same time, it is deep enough to drown an elephant. Such good stuff there. You can read John a million times. You'll discover a million new things. That's what I love about it. Okay, that's everything about John. Uh, we'll probably look at uh, James next week. Anything else you guys have? Nothing. All right, well, uh, how about we close out in prayer? And since Andy...